Okay, here we are now with our next episode in the series, which is titled Finding Other Worlds. This series is a commentary on the Chronicles of Narnia by C.S. Lewis. And today we're going through the second part of The Horse and His Boy. So if you're interested in the book The Horse and His Boy, listen to the episode just before this, because that one will have the beginning half of the plot and the comments of some of the observations we have made about this story thus far. So, exactly where were we up to? Well, Bree and his boy, with their friends, the mayor and Aravis, are on their way through the desert. And they're making their way to Arnhem Land to warn them, to warn the king that Rabadash is on his way with an army planning to cause havoc to catch them unawares. And tactically speaking, that can be a big problem in these worlds. Now, remember, this is the fantasy world. This is not the modern world. So warfare was very different back then. And to catch someone off guard really did mean a lot. To storm into their city without them realizing what's happening can really cause them to, well, lose the lot, especially if you go straight for the king himself, straight for the high court. You can really take over a city with not much force. And that is exactly what Rabadash plans to do. He expects to make a mess of things, right and truly so, because he just wants to have this Susan who doesn't love him, and they're really, quite frankly, not a good match. So, as they travel through the desert, as Bree and his boy are travelling, it's hard, it's long, the sun is burning, and they do have to have turns walking without the humans on their backs, just to conserve their strength. And each time they have a stretch without the humans on their back, without Shasta on his back, well, there's this one time where he jumps down and he realises the sand is too hot. It's too much, he can't do it. So he jumps back up onto Bree and he thinks, well, it's so bad for me. How bad is it for you? You've got to walk all day on this. So everyone's doing it tough. And they do lose a lot of energy. It is quite brutal to be in the desert, to go that long with such hot nights, such, such hot days and such cold nights, and to have no shade. Well, it's really tough going. But they push on because they know they have an important mission. They have an important message to take. 
and they do find a way into a gully, which has some shade and is a little bit easier going. And it does further along have some water, so they do make it through the desert. But they realize that actually this way that they've gone through the gully has taken them off course, which means that, sure, it's easier going, and yes, they do have the water, but it's also taken them longer, which would mean that if Rabadash is going straight through, he might actually overtake them. So time is really of the essence. You really get this sense that they have to keep going, they have to keep moving. And even one morning, they all sort of fall asleep, and Shasta is sort of trying to get them up. No, wake up, we need to keep going. This is really important. We have to make sure we make way, and they've all fallen asleep, and it becomes a bit of a pressing subject. It becomes a pressing issue with them as to, well, whether they should rest, eat some grass, have some sleep, have some water, or really press on. But they do press on. They do keep venturing forward. And just as they're getting closer to where they need to arrive, a lion comes out from behind them and roars. And of course, this puts them into a lot of fear because lions are quite dangerous. And Bree knows this. Bree is quite sure of this. And also the mare. So they run for it. And this lion, well, it chases them, chases them. And they're quite scared and they keep running and running and running. And they have that spurt to keep them going and they're running so much further than just what their energies even told them they could. So they have this thing in them, which is that they've been traveling through the desert. They've been traveling for days. They've been tired, they're exhausted, and yet now there's a lion behind them. And now they have this more energy. They have this ability to really kick it even further over the edge. And there's something in that image, there's something very important that's being told. Now I had another story which was similar to this. It's not quite, not quite similar, but the same principle applies which is that when I was in jazz school, I turned up for one of my first improv lessons. And the teacher was a saxophone player. And he gave us this piece of music, short little piece of music. And he's sort of showing it to us, teaching it to us. And we're all sort of learning it. And towards the end of the class, he says, oh, by the way, the assessment for this piece is next week and it's going to count towards your final mark for the semester. And we're all sort of like, whoa, okay. So we've got to learn this piece in one week. And then he says, actually, also you've got to learn it in 12 keys. <laughs> so it wasn't just learning the piece once, but learning the piece 12 times. And... We all thought, whoa, okay, damn, we've got to get on. We've got to be on our game. We've really got to smash this out. We've only got a week. And, well, we went away. We did our practice. And we came back the next week. 
And he said, well, how did you go with it? How far did you get? What have you got done? And we all did varying degrees of abilities of playing this piece, this short piece, in 12 keys. (laughs) And of course he said, well, no, I just told you that it was the exam. I just told you it was the assessment just to see how much juice you could get out, how much energy you could get out, how much you could put in. Now, of course, he wasn't quite like this. He was, well, stories about people are never quite the same as what people are really like, are they? So the image, though, the the principle is you never know how much you can put in. You never know how much you can actually get out of your body, out of your efforts. You never know what can really push you that further mile. We sort of walk around with these limits on us, with these ideas of what is possible. And really, there's a lot to say about energy. There's a lot to say about productivity. There's really a lot in that. That's a whole subject to talk about. And I'm reminded of this thing that Osho said, and I'm sure I've said it before, but I'll say it again, but this is really important to understand. And what Osho has said on this exact subject is very insightful, very important to understand. The way he talks about it, and what I've heard him say, is that there are three levels of energy that you have throughout the day. So if you think of like your energy level as how much fuel in the tank, how much stuff you can do in one day before you collapse, right? Osho says there are three levels. The first level is where you have enough energy, just enough, just the exact right amount, to do the things that you normally do throughout your day. So whatever you do normally, the amount of stuff that you do, whatever it takes, you have enough energy just to do that. Now, that's the first level. Now, to get to the second level, you have to break that amount. You have to have more energy than the amount of stuff that you have to do in your day. Now, to break that, what you actually have to do is to do more than what you normally do. And when you're first doing this, when you're first breaking out of your first level, it feels exhausting. It feels like you cannot do it. It feels impossible. It has a kind of immense weight to it. It's this huge barrier. But, If you can break through that barrier, if you can push on, then what you find is you have actually a kind of normalization. Your energy level goes up a notch. It goes to level two, which is that you can do more than what you normally do with your day. And you're also doing more. And you're not tired at the end of it. Now, there's a third level And the third level is another barrier which you have to break through. And it's just as hard as the barrier between level one and two, if not harder. 
But if you break through it, if you push on and you go further than you can, there is this thing which Osho called infinite energy. This is when you are tapping into something which is beyond you. You're tapping into sources that are inhuman in a sense. They're beyond your capabilities. And there's all sorts of things within that realm. There's all sorts of things within that level. You can say, well, it's ground energy or it's heavenly energy or it's infinite energy or it's godly energy, these sorts of things. But all, all those sort of distinctions and what you say about where it comes from is just sort of discussion, really. But the point of the matter is that you can break into infinite energy. And I say that as someone who has witnessed it in others. I say that as someone who has seen how these apply. And I would by no means say that I'm someone who has infinite energy. But, I mean, let's not make it about me. There's a lot I can say about energy and motivation, both personally and conceptually. But just to hit home this Osho image... I have seen it at work in others, and it's an astonishing thing. It's a very amazing thing, and it's quite rare. It's very rare to meet someone with infinite energy. The sorts of things, my goodness, the sorts of things that I've seen people do, you wouldn't believe. And they're really the sorts of people you can't believe until you see them with your own eyes. Do you see them actually do it? And it's at this point, <laughs> it's at this point in the conversation where a lot of my own stories open up, right? There's a lot of stories that I could tell down that direction. So let's bring this back to where we're at today. So this came up because these, this lion is chasing these horses at the end of this long haul through the desert. And he's chasing them on their way. And actually what happens is the lion catches up to them. And the lion attacks Aravis. He starts slashing her back. And this is really violent. This is really aggressive. And what's his name? Shasta. He jumps off the horse. Bree runs away. The mare runs away. And Shasta, well, he sort of runs up to the lion and he has this thing where he sort of goes, go home, go home, get out of here, sort of shoes him away like a dog. And he doesn't know what he's thinking. He doesn't know why he's doing this. But the strangest thing happens, which is that the lion stops attacking Aravis and looks at him and goes home. He just plods off. So now we've got this situation, which is that the horses are exhausted, Aravis is wounded, and Rabadash has his army coming up at any moment. And just in the nick of time, the hermit turns up, and the hermit is able to take care of the horses and dress the wounds of 
Aravis. And Shasta is sort of standing there thinking, now, what are we to do? What can we do? And the hermit, well, he's an old man. He can't do much. He's got to take care of them. But he says, you've got to run. You've got to do the rest of the journey. It's not too far on foot. And you've got to run as fast as you can to tell the king of Arnhem Land that the people are coming, that Rabadash is coming. So the saying that he says, this hermit, to Shasta is that if you do one good deed, your reward is to do a harder, better one. So Shasta has just shown great bravery in chewing this lion away. And his reward is to do something that's incredibly difficult and incredibly good. So he runs and he runs and he runs and he runs. He runs for his life. So while the other three are resting with the hermit, there's a few little bits of information that come out, which is that Bree is, first of all, quite ashamed of himself because he ran away from the lion while Shasta helped him. And he starts to think about, well, what is his honour if he's a war horse and he runs away? He doesn't help his friends. And he also starts to think, as he's talking with this hermit, this is also part of the discussions of where they're at and what they're sort of reflections are on the journey so far. And he starts to think about, well, once you get to Narnia, says the hermit, you might actually just be a normal horse. The qualities that you have is this talking, mythological, intelligent, strong, well-bred war horse will just be stock standard stuff for a Narnia horse. And that's another thing that Bree is considering with his self-image because he's sort of been going through life under this thing that he's unable to show his talents, but in another way he's been able to maintain to himself that he's better than the people around him. He's always been able to say to himself, really, deep down, I am more intelligent than normal horses and even more intelligent than most of the people that are in his life. And yet now he's considering, well, now I'm going to be surrounded by the norm. I'm not going to be special, so I won't have that as a defense. So his inner world is shifting. His image of himself and what he is and what he means and how his standing is in his community is shifting. So Shasta runs, and he runs, and he runs, and he runs. And he catches up with King Loon, the king of Arnhem Land. And when he meets King Loon, well, he's got some horses. So he gives Shasta a horse, and he says, okay, we've got to get back to the castle and raise the alarm. And as they're riding, well, at least the information is warned now. But 
Shasta, <laughs> he doesn't know how to ride a normal horse. <laughs> so he's in this awkward situation where he's on the back of this horse and he can ride it as it's riding, but he can't actually get it to go faster because he's never had to use the reins when he was riding Bree. He's never had to tell Bree to go faster. And this is just a normal horse. This is not an intelligent horse. And so the king, Loon, and his company run off ahead, and nighttime comes, and Shasta and this standard horse fall behind. And he turns into just a slow walk. So Shasta is in the dark on this horse that he can't control, that he can't talk to, and he's just hoping it's going in the right direction. He's just trusting that it's going in the direct, the right direction, which it is. But as he's walking, as he's riding through the dark, he starts to become a little bit more perceptive of the things that are happening around him. His senses become heightened because of the night. And after some time, he would have sworn that he could hear someone walking next to him. He could hear something heavy, a kind of animal, breathing, walking next to him. And time goes on and he's thinking about it and he's listening and he's wondering and he can't see anything because it's dark. And eventually he decides to actually see, well, who's there? And he calls out. And he calls out into the dark, who is there? And a deep voice comes back that says, someone who has been waiting a long time for you to speak. And that's an image of God. That's an image of existence. Call out to God. Call out to existence. Really ask who's there. Really ask what is out there. Because existence wants you to. And we could even say, God wants you to. Now, of course, we're using the word God and existence interchangeably here. It works the same whether existence is personified in the shape of a human being or a lion or a God of any shape or sort. The same principle, the same point of the perennial philosophy is there, which is call out. And existence is waiting. Existence has been waiting for a long time. So Shasta realizes that he's talking with Aslan. And Aslan explains to him that he's been with him for his entire journey. And he wonders, well, how? How is that possible? And Aslan says, well, do you remember 
when you first met the mayor and Aravis, it was that they were running away from a lion. And he says that he was scaring them so that they would meet up, they would run into each other, and they would have to work together. And then he says, do you remember then where you were waiting at the tombs and there was a cat watching over you? And he says, well, that was me too. Now, we can talk about Aslan as this thing who, as this entity who can change into different forms, right? So this is the first time where we realize, well, perhaps Aslan isn't just a lion and maybe he can take different forms and he just chooses to be a lion when he shows himself to others. Now, there's a lot of funny tricks in that. There's a lot of different things in that. But what we find out later on is that actually Aslan is a lion. But then also Shasta says, well, what about the attack? And Aslan says, well, I needed to scare Bree and the mare so that they could get that last bit of energy out of the leg of the journey. And he says, well, well, what about Aravis? Why did you slash her back? She's wounded. You've done this violent thing. And to this, Aslan doesn't answer. He says, your story is yours to know. And someone else's story is theirs to know. So Aslan doesn't say. So the other thing that comes out is that, I think, I think this comes out later on, but it's happening basically now in our plot, which is that Shasta is riding this horse along this cliff edge. And as he's talking to Aslan, Aslan is sort of staying between the edge of the cliff and the side of the mountain so that this horse knows the right way to go. So that's yet another thing that Aslan is doing, sort of with this benevolence without Shasta knowing. And it's helpful. It's needed. It's critical. So all these sorts of interventions in the journey from Aslan, they're benevolent. They're done without him being seen. And they're done without the significance of them being known, without the importance of them being known. And not only that, but they're done in such a way that on the face of it, on the surface of it, it would appear that it was a kind of hindrance, right? In some of these cases, it would seem that it was a bad thing that was happening. And yet now... The point of it and the effect of it has flipped that it's actually a good thing. And that's, well, is that a characteristic of God? Is that a characteristic of the universe? Is that a characteristic of existence? And if it was the case, well, how would that be as an answer to the question, why do good things happen to bad people? Or even just more generally, why do bad things happen? Why is there so much wrong with the world? Well, it could be that you just don't understand how the plot is unfolding. 
It could be that you're just not seeing things beyond the surfaces. And there's a lot in that. I mean, that's a really big one. That's a that's a real sort of classic theological chestnut, you know? Why does why does God let bad things happen? And there's a lot of different answers to that. I mean, you can't just say that I mean it's a pretty textbook thing, which is to say, well, you can't really understand and in every direction now, there's a theological line of reasoning. There's a sort of spiral into different sort of theological answers to those questions. And it's here that we have to draw a kind of parallel between theology and philosophy, because in philosophy, you've got these questions as well. You've got these same sort of questions. You know, what what is the good life? What does it mean to be brave? What is beauty? What is truth? These are sort of philosophical questions, right? And the parallel between that philosophy is, well, the theology. And the theological chestnuts are, well, why does God let bad things happen? Why do, good, why do bad things happen to good people? Why doesn't God intervene to make things better? These sorts of questions. Now, on both these sides, on the theological side and the philosophical side, there are textbook answers that spiral out into different directions. But really, there's a higher maturity, which is to know the function of these mechanics, of these questions, the function of these, what, well, how's a better way to put this? Let's see if I can put this more clearly. The higher value is to recognize what's going on with these mechanisms. It's to recognize what's going on with these questions. And really, you can say, well, these are stupid questions that lead nowhere. Or you can get caught up in the answers and you can say, well, no, this really is the answer. And you can use any number of answers. You can choose any of the number of answers that there are. Or you can say, well, let's go meta. Let's see what happens if we just entertain some of these ideas. Let's see what happens if we put it into a few different paradigms. What's the practical application? Well, that's just putting a paradigm on it. That's just saying, well, why does it have to have a practical application? And fundamentally, I think that the answer to all of this is to have fun, to actually just enjoy the tangles that happen (laughs) and to be able to sort of brush them off at the end of a long tangent which has occurred with words. So, (laughs) that happens between Shasta and Aslan. And the next morning, well, Aslan heads off, and the next morning Shasta arrives in Narnia. And all the animals come out, and 
All this stuff starts happening. It is a glorious arrival. He makes friends with some squirrels and some chipmunks. And there's a badger and there's a little mouse. And all these people and they feed him some food and he has a big breakfast. And of course, he's been starving. He's had this huge journey, this huge run, this ride and no sleep. And they're all talking, of course. They're all saying, well, why are you here? And he said, well, you know, he's warned King Loon from Arnhem Land that, well, an army is coming because it's Rabadash about uh, Queen Susan. It's Rabadash being all up in arms about Queen Susan. So the, the news spreads and he has a rest and he has a sleep. And actually, King Edmund hears about this and he's like, well, okay, let's do something about this now that we've got our information. And they've just arrived back also from their sail from the original place they were. And King Edmund rises up, raises up his army and says, let's go and help out King Loon with this Rabadash guy. So not only is he safe, but it's also like, okay, it's all because of, it's, it's, it's sort of not because of them. I mean, it's sort of because of them, but also not because of them that they're in this situation. But Edmund's just doing the right thing. He's, he's Edmund the Just. So he sets things out. And the other thing that happens is that Shasta meets up with Corin again. And that's when they work out that they are twin brothers, right? That's when it all makes sense why they got mixed up with who they were back in that other city. The other thing is that, well, Aravis learns that Aslan had slashed her as a kind of getting even, or as a kind of justice. I don't want to say getting even, that's not how it's put. It's a kind of lesson which she has to learn for, from drugging the slave that she did when she made her escape. So it was actually just, it was a kind of punishment that Aslan put on Aravis because of what she'd done. And somehow with her it sits right, it seems to be right. So the other funny thing that happens is that Breeze sort of talking amongst his friends and he sort of brings up the point of Aslan because he's talking about how he's always saying, by the lion's beard. And Bree is sort of like, you know, I don't know if he really is a lion. I think he might just be some sort of mythological creature that can take any form and this is when Aslan actually turns up and he sneaks up behind Bree and gives him a fright and then laughs and sort of says, no, come and take a look at me. And Aslan says, well, come and take a close look at me and see that I am actually a beast. I'm as, a, as much a beast as you are. And that is... Something to show that, well, 
God takes many forms and each of those is the genuine bona fide thing. It's the real deal. And of course, I love to bring in the Hindu mythology. I mean, I'm much more sympathetic to the idea that God takes many forms and that's taken to its nth degree, which is that, you know, God, well, I am a manifestation of God. You are a manifestation of God. The book on the bookshelf is a manifestation of God and so on. It's just that in this story, well, that line is drawn slightly further than just everything more towards the end of, well, God is just a few things. And in the Christian tradition, well, God is man and God is spirit and God is the Father. So God is only three things. But that's another, that's another sort of structure of religion to understand. And it's the difference between monotheism and polytheism or even pantheism. And I'm very much more sympathetic to the idea of, well, everything is a manifestation of spirit. I don't know if you even need to bring God into it. But these are just, these are just religion. This is just religious jargon. This is just sort of, let's get back to our plot. So where are we? So Ava's has learned and she's resting. Oh, yes, and there's a battle. So Shasta, oh, Shasta and Corin, they sort of sneak out to be in the battle as well, which is sort of tricky, sort of mischievous. And they battle Rabadash and they make things right. They defeat him and everything's basically returned to peace. Now... As for Rabadash, he turns up in the court of Edmund, having lost his battle, and Edmund is like, well, what are we going to do with this guy, right? He's obviously caused a lot of trouble. He's obviously broken the laws of going to war without saying that you were going to go to war. He's obviously working against his father's will, and he's obviously been very violent, caused a whole lot of trouble just because Susan didn't want to marry him. That's really what it comes down to. So he's very much in the wrong. And Edmund, in his wisdom, says, no, we're not going to execute him. Yes, he is a traitor, but we're not going to execute him. And Edmund says, because he has known that a traitor can heal. A traitor can learn from their ways. And of course we know that Edmund knew this firsthand with his own experiences with the White Witch in the early days of when he was first living in Narnia. But Rabadash, well, he's a real he's a real twat. And he says, Come on, fight me. I want to fight you. I'm gonna break free and I'm gonna get another army and I'm gonna come up against you. So 
Edmund is like, oh my goodness, we've just given you your life back and you still want to be difficult. And in this moment, well, Aslan turns up. And Aslan puts a spell on him which turns him into a donkey. Rabidash the Ridiculous. That's what he's called. And he turns into a donkey under specific conditions, which is that he is a donkey until he turns up at his father's door on a particular time, which is the festival season, on the moonlight or whatever it is, the technicalities of the magic fine print, the terms and con- <laughs> the terms and conditions of the magic. And if he does that, then he'll be turned into his old self again and he won't be a donkey anymore. And as the story happens, well, he does do that. And the other thing is that if he leaves that city by a certain radius, you know, he's got like a 10-mile radius, then he'll turn into a donkey again. So he can't wreak any havoc. He can't raise any more armies. Basically, otherwise, he'll turn into a donkey. Basically, Aslan's put a restraining order on him. Stay within 10 miles or he'll turn into a donkey. And of course, the name Rabidash the Ridiculous stuck because everyone saw him having the spell lifted when he went back to his father's kingdom. So, there's one more little thing that comes out of this story. And I say it's little, but I've saved it till the end because actually I don't think it's little. It's actually very important to understand. And this is that Shasta has found his origins. He's found where he came from. And the story is that when he was a little child, he was separated from his family, from his little brother, his twin brother, and cast off in a little boat into the river. And this was actually to escape someone who was trying to assassinate him because of a prophecy. But that's another side plot. And the little boat that came up on the shore that was taken by his original master who had called him his son, who wasn't his father, by Shasta, was the man who found the boat. And that's how he got to where he was. And so it is that Shasta is related to royalty. He's actually the eldest also of the two, which means that he is the rightful heir and king of the land of his family. And the further side of this is he finds his original name. He finds his real name. And his real name is Kor, C-O-R. So in Narnia, it's common to have two brothers to have similar names. So it's Corin and Kor, just like you have Cole and Colin. And that's apparently just a normal thing that happens in these lands, in Narnia and in other lands too, in these fairy tale times. So it's Corin and Kor. And it's quite significant to remember your origins. And that's reflected in 
finding your original name. The name is of great significance. And of course, you realize that (laughs) I put so much emphasis on this because I feel the same way about my name, right? You know that I'm not Andrew Lake, right? That's not my real name. Of course, my name my name is Andrew Lake, but my real name is Dosta. And Dosta is to me as core is to Shasta. So I was born and given the name Andrew Lake, but then I found my origins again. So it wasn't like Dosta was this new name to signify this spiritual awakening or anything like that. No, it was actually that. It was my original name. It was the name I should have been given. And I mean origins in exactly the way that I meant when we had that episode previously, which was that even if, even if you weren't stolen by a slave owner who lied to you about being your father, you still have a shock as to the truth of your origins coming. You still have a difference, which is as contrasting between the story you're told about your family, your ancestry, who you are, and the reality of it, the truth of it. And that's really how I feel about my name. I mean, I'm only, I'm only Andrew when someone calls me Andrew. I'm only Andrew when, uh, and I mean, I I still use the name Andrew. It's my, it's sort of like my pen name or my, I guess it's, I guess it's almost like an alter ego in a sense. I mean, <laughs> I've, I've already done so much with alter egos. I don't know if I need yet another alter ego, but I guess I'm Uncle Andrew to some. <laughs> and I, I guess you could say, well, I'm only... I'm only Dosta when someone calls me Dosta, right? The same thing applies. I mean, you're, on, you're only your name when someone's using your name. And that's actually something that's quite revealing. <laughs> if, you can, if you can wrap your head around that, you can understand the difference between the story you're told about who your father is and the truth of the matter and the shock of that, even if they didn't lie to you in the conventional sense. Am I too much of a mind warp? Sometimes I just pretend to make sense. In fact, do you know, I've thought about this a couple of times recently. You must realize, you must know this about me. Now that you've, now that we're coming to the end of the episode, we can be a little bit personal. I only ever pretend to make sense. Even when I make sense, I'm not really making sense. Did you know that? That can be our little secret. Make sure you don't tell anyone. And don't let that stop you from not listening along, of course. I'm sure it can be a put-off. I'm sure it can be a little bit unsettling. But let me assure you, it's completely, entirely, safely, not under control what is happening. So... Sometimes I don't make sense on purposely for a purpose that is unseen for what was happening and that's really just what the words happen to be like when they come out. But even when they do make sense, these words that happen 
Well, I'm just pretending. So that's the end of the horse and his boy. Oh, I really should have said that what the rest happened to Bree. So the other funny thing that happens to Bree is that he starts rolling on the grass and he's sort of in two minds about where the horses in Narnia do that. He's wondering, maybe it's this bad habit that he's picked up from the, the lesser horses, the unintelligible beings, the beasts. And what actually happens is he sort of says, to hell with all these mind games and these self-image issues. I just love rolling on the grass, so I'm going to roll on the grass. And he's in Narnia and he rolls on the grass and he comes into his own. So that's what happens in the end with our lead character, Bree, the horse, who once had a boy, quite a remarkable boy, and together they went on that journey, on that quest. So next up will be Prince Caspian. That will be book four. And that is a juicy one. I know I say that about everyone. Well, I don't say it about everyone. I mean, the horse and his boy is pretty juicy. The magician's nephew, that's pretty juicy. And the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe. Well, yeah, now that I think about it, they are all, they're all pretty juicy. And Prince Caspian is pretty juicy. So, so let's just say, look, they're all juicy. So thanks very much for tuning in, and we'll be back very soon with more. That's all I have to say for now. Deep a doo, be doo, deep a doo, be doo.